Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 16th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is communicating virtually is like eating Pringles forever. With me is Nick Morgan, most recently the author of Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. Nick's book is published by Harvard Business Review Press. Dr. Dick Morgan is one of America's top communication theorists and coaches. He's written for Fortune 50 CEOs, as well as for political and education leaders, and has coached people to give congressional testimony, to appear on the Today Show, and to deliver great TED Talks. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation. Lots of good practical tips to cover here as we all endure the virtual world amid COVID-19. So to begin, just in brief, what is the book about? Can you tell me what Can You Can Hear Me is is talking about? Yeah, sure. I used to go around the world. Uh, You remember when we could do that, talking about (laughs) body language and storytelling. And and I noticed over the last few years that more and more I get the following question, Nick, thanks. This stuff about body language is all very good, but my team is based in India and France and California. Um, I never see them face to face. How does communication work that way when you say body language is so important? And, and my first reaction was, well, duh, it doesn't work. <laughs> and then I thought, uh, I'm supposed to be a communications expert. I better give a better answer than that. So uh, I dived into the research. I found five big problems with, with uh, virtual communication. The first and biggest of which, and, and the one that uh, causes all the others, uh, really is that the kind of information about human intent which is what we humans care about more than anything else when we're communicating with another person. We care less about the exact words, more about the intent. All that intent comes through naturally and unconsciously to us via body language. It's the nod, the smile, the wink, the the sneer, the scowl, the information that tells us what's the human intent behind the words. That gets cut out instantly and completely in the virtual world um, and then... We have various kinds of technology to try to put it back in, but for various reasons, which we can talk about uh, in more depth or not, as you choose, Dan, it's it's, uh, less than perfect. And so lacking that information about human intent, lacking that feedback, uh, we struggle in the virtual world. And so my book talks about what the lack is, the, the problems that it causes, and what we can do about it. Okay. Well, being a facial expressions expert, I feel sorely uh, the lack, and and Zoom can make up for that somewhat, but certainly not entirely. So I'm going to start with a couple of bigger picture questions. We have often, if you look at the taxonomy of emotions, maybe four or five kind of quote-unquote negative emotions. And I'm wondering which of these you think maybe is the most accentuated, unfortunately, in virtual communication. So I'm talking about sadness or fear 
or anger or disgust or contempt? Do you think one of those goes to the roof more than the others in this new setup? Yes. What happens is, and, and we don't even need to get on video conference to, to understand this. It happens on audio conferences too, and it happens in in uh, written uh, virtual communications. Um, but but let's let's focus on that middle one, the audio uh, the audio um, communication. So um, imagine a team of people, uh, and they're having their weekly. Um, audio uh, communication in order to uh, keep the team up to date to talk about their latest issues, whatever those are. All right. So they're chattering away and, and let's say Jane gets a brilliant idea and she utters it and she asks for feedback and there's a pause. Now that pause comes about because everybody's lunging for their mute button. They're processing what they've heard <laughs> and, yep. and they're thinking, what am I supposed to say? Nonetheless, when you're in person, what you get is an instant read on how everybody else feels about that idea. And you get that from the body language. So people lean forward, they smile, they nod, they look supportive or the opposite. Um, and so uh, lacking that feedback, just in that little micro pause, you can't help it. Nobody assumes, oh, they think it's such a great idea, they're stunned into silence. What happens is people assume that they don't like the idea and at, at base is contempt. Um, so uh, my reading and, and my research shows in the virtual world that contempt is what we're experiencing. We think the other people find us and our ideas contemptible in those little micro pauses. And the same thing happens on video conference for more complicated technical reasons. Um, and of course, it happens uh, when we send that too short, too quick email where the intent isn't clear. Well, that would certainly be high stakes because contempt is the most reliable indicator that you'll get divorced. Uh, if trust is the emotion of business, contempt is the opposite. So um, that is that is big stakes indeed. You you mentioned audio, so I wasn't planning to go here for the second question, but let me take it on anyway. I was intrigued because you said one of the things that happens with telephone or being virtually in general is the voice's undertones uh, get lost. Can you give me, maybe this is an unfair question, can you give me an example here live of, of what you mean by undertone or some way of conveying that for, for listeners? Yeah, it's easier to understand if you had to play a musical instrument growing up. Um, the, the, the Think about a musical instrument or a human voice as a pitch, first of all. So you, there's a note you have to play. Um, let's say it's this middle C. Uh, and a human voice has to speak at a particular pitch. Again, let's pretend it's middle C. Um, okay. But uh, that's just the beginning because we can tell a piano middle C from a guitar middle C, from a trumpet middle C, from a human voice speaking at middle C. How do we know the difference? The difference is it isn't just that pitch that we hear. It's overtones beneath the pitch and, and – uh, sorry, overtones above the pitch and undertones beneath the pitch that give that note its quality that makes it sound like a guitar – a piano or a voice. Okay, so the richness of the range or those undertones is what's getting lost and deprives the communication of a, a warm feeling. Is that a good summary? It, yes, it's more than a warm feeling, though. It's because the uh, emotions that we humans uh, yeah. convey are can are uh, are carried in the undertones specifically and mostly, and a little bit in the overtones. But it's also just the quality of the voice. So that voice that makes. Uh, it sounds like your uncle Pete that you know and love uh, or your mother <laughs> or, or somebody that's a dear friend that by 
squeezing the overtones and undertones, it makes it sound just a little less like that person. And so we don't get, first of all, that kind of deep response that we have, that connection with somebody that's activated by hearing their voice. And then second of all, it's harder to detect the emotions that they're trying to convey. Okay. So things kind of get squelched and compressed and a lot lost emotionally. Um, let me go to the opposite way. So I was talking about what got lost. If we try to now compensate for these limitations, let's take Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which of course at the bottom of the pyramid is sex and shelter, et cetera. And at the top gets to self-realization. Can we build kind of a pyramid from bottom to top of how foundationally you want to try to compensate for these limitations? in virtual communication? Is there some criteria of what's most important to try to keep in mind to, to uh, make the adjustments? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I would come at it the following way. So during this pandemic, when we're all suddenly communicating virtually, what do we have in our minds? Uh, we have our own personal safety on our minds, and we have good reasons for that. We're worried about the pandemic. We're worried about things like job safety uh, and, and our health. Uh, that puts us very low on Maslow's hierarchy uh, at some sort of safety level. Uh, and when we're hearing things at the safety level or we're getting input at the safety level or we're worried about the safety level, then anything above that is less compelling to us. And so if you want to communicate with somebody during, ma during uh, the pandemic, um, in a way that reaches them at the right level on Maslow's hierarchy, you have to be talking about safety issues. It's why so many people reported that they're reading more, but they're reading post-apocalyptic apocalyptic fiction or zombie. Uh, they're watching zombie movies or something like that, um, and that the normal stuff of their uh, entertainment doesn't uh, hold them in the same way that it did before and presumably will again after the pandemic has passed. And you're also saying they're turning into zombies thanks to virtual communication and <laughs> trying to survive the conversation. It's zombies everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out. I guess we're, we're now on a sci-fi episode here. I didn't <laughs> expect that, but hey, so it goes. Um, so let's go back to trust because, yeah. you know, contempt is such a, uh, such a uh, toxic emotion. What's the number one thing that you can try to do to increase trust in virtual communication? And what's maybe the most uh, fatal flaw whereby you lose trust in virtual communication? Yeah, that's a great question. It's fascinating to me what happens to trust in the virtual world. And, and I use this, or I explain this by, uh, with recourse uh, to Uncle Pete again, only in this case, Uncle Pete is that relative that you see over Thanksgiving. All uh, We Americans all celebrate Thanksgiving. If you've got uh, people listening from other countries, it's this weird American habit we have uh, sort of around the, after the, uh, after the harvest, uh, where we get together, we eat too much food and we uh, drink a little too much and then we start to argue with each other. Um, and this apparently happens so predictably that every year um, in all the newspapers, they run articles about how to deal with your angry relatives during Thanksgiving. So uh, it must be a thing. All right. So uh, Uncle, Uncle Pete over Thanksgiving starts doing his usual thing, which is he has a little too much to drink and he starts talking politics that you don't like. Um, you grin and bear it or you yell back at him, something untoward happens or maybe it doesn't. But the point is, by the following Monday, when Thanksgiving is finally safely over, he's still your Uncle Pete. And so you still trust him in that deep sense that we have for relatives and close uh, family members and deep friends. Um, online, something different happens. 
Uncle, what has Uncle Pete done then over Thanksgiving? He's behaved inconsistently. The rest of the year, he's fine, but over Thanksgiving, he behaves in a different way. Online, when somebody behaves inconsistently, that's the criteria we use for trust. And so if you're inconsistent online, people will cut you dead instantly. And they can do that online. That's the point. They can just go away and not come back. The, the simplest way to understand this is with the retail example. So uh, let's say you go to a website and you're trying to buy a shirt um, and it's a website you haven't been to before, but you like the look of these shirts. And you get on there and you find a size and a color and everything is right. You go to checkout and for some reason the checkout is taking a little too long or you don't like the way it looks at your credit card or something. It all begins to feel a little fishy. So what do you do? Because you haven't shopped there before, because you don't trust them, you immediately cut loose. You don't go back and say, hmm, maybe that website was having an off day. Uh, maybe the uh, uh, website operator had had a little too much to drink. No, you just cut them loose and you don't go back again. In fact, the odds are you go to Amazon and buy the shirt there if you can, or to some other familiar site like that. So online, we use different criteria than the basic notion of trust that we humans have for each other face to face. Uh, and that the uh, basic criteria becomes consistency. And so the single most important thing to do to establish and maintain trust online is to be relentlessly, inhumanly, forever consistent, <laughs> which is very hard for us humans to do. Okay. So you, you play to what's familiar to them. Does this mean also maybe mirroring back using the, the language that they're using? Does that help them? Everyone feel like they're connecting more tightly because we're, we're back on Maslow's first rung here of security? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, mirroring is a good thing to do in person. It's very powerful in person because you can use body language. Online, as you're suggesting, you can only mirror the words. That helps a little uh, to suggest that you are like and similar. We tend to trust things that are or people that are more like us than not. So uh, that can help. But again, the real test is consistency. So don't suddenly throw in a dumb joke. <laughs> or an off-color joke, or one that you haven't tried before. You know, don't uh, don't suddenly change the amount of communication. If you communicate once a week with somebody, don't suddenly communicate once a day. They'll think you've gone crazy, and they'll stop trusting you. Um, so it, it, it's about all about consistency of mode, means, uh, con, uh, amount, timing of communication. Okay, so this is not the time to experiment. In other words, okay, exactly. So, so one of the things you bring up several times, different chapters, as a suggestion, is that barring all these normal signals that we intuitively play off of with body language and undertones and so forth, that you can use kind of a red light, green light, yellow light traffic signal arrangement to kind of see how the conference call, for instance, is going for people. Um, what happens if you do that and everyone says red light? Uh, what's your recourse? What, what's, what do you do besides panic? Uh, well, panic would be a good first option, and then <laughs> maybe canceling the call. Um, I, I have think, to use the bathroom. I'll be back in 12 hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think uh, what you need to do then is to set up one-to-one -one calls and find out what's going on. Presumably, this is a team of people that you worked with before or, or is an ongoing uh, group that, that you're in touch with, and so you need to uh, you need to check in quickly and find out what's going on. The, um, the, the uh, red light, yellow light, green light, uh, system works very well because people don't have to disclose exactly what's making them upset, which is hard to do online. So uh, I would say, uh, yeah, follow up very quickly one-on-one -on -one in a safe mode of communication, one that you both trust. 
in order to find out why all those red lights are, are blinking. Okay. Um, I'll go into some specific tactical questions here, mm. uh, just out of curiosity. So uh, in terms of cleaning up one's digital tracks, since the internet never forgets, I wonder if this is even possible, but assuming it is, what's the best practices way to improve on one's digital tracks? Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, challenge for people. I was working with a, with a CEO of a startup company. Uh, this is about a year and a half ago now. And I was called in because he was trying to transform his industry and, and it needed to be transformed. And uh, as a result, he tended to get very passionate. One of the forms that passion took was berating his employees when he didn't feel they worked hard enough. And he did that so thoroughly and so well that they often quit and a lot of turnover in his company. This is not good if you're a young startup trying desperately to staff your company. So they called me in to see if I could tone, help him tone down his communications, become more self-aware, become a better communicator. And the first thing he asked me when we sat down was, uh, he said, Nick, do you know this thing, Glassdoor? And I said, yeah. Uh, and he went to the website and he showed me he had just fired some people that he felt weren't sufficiently passionate. Um, and he, he pointed to their reviews of him on Glassdoor. In case any of your listeners don't know, Glassdoor is a place where you can go and dish on your uh, your employer. Uh, you could also say nice things, but people mostly, I mean, and some do, yeah. but people mostly say the negative things. This is the online world. Um, and and he pointed these out these uh, terrible things people had said about him because he, they, he had just fired them. Um, and, and he said, can you get those taken down? <laughs> and, and I just <laughs> let, me call, let me call Mark Zuckerberg right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. I could get the, no, I couldn't. I said, and, and I just laughed at him actually. And, and he did not appreciate that. Uh, and then of course I explained and he, to his credit, understood that and, and realized uh, that, this was not an option that was available because the machines never forget. Um, and so he said, what do I do? And I said, the only thing you can do really is get enough people to say nice things about you that it crowds out or puts in perspective the couple of negative things. And so um, that's what uh, that's what he did to his credit. He dug in and, and did the long term okay. thing yeah, and made the effort. Okay. Uh, something that made me chuckle in the book, because it's just so true, although I had many chuckles in the book. It's a well-written book. Thank you. Um, you talked about webinars, and I mean, they are <laughs> painful, many of them, uh, as you characterize them, sparse information and heavy selling. Uh, any good practitioners or, or formats you've seen that have tried to overcome this? I can't tell you how many webinars I've bailed from within five to 10 minutes, sensing you know, I'm on the Titanic. Yeah, you and 90% of people who attend webinars, uh, there's a huge drop-off rate about 10 minutes in uh, for that reason. Um, and because they are exactly what you described, there are a lot of things you could do to make it better. The first thing to realize is that uh, the, the thing that happens when you uh, go online, when you take a thing like a webinar online, is that you democratize it. So when I'm giving a speech in the face-to-face -face world, I'm up on a stage, there are lights on me, I get introduced by somebody as this great human being. It's, uh, it's all uh, put together to make, to, to build me up in the eyes of the audience. So I look like an authority. 
um, in the in the online webinar, you just look like another node on the system. You're just you're all yeah. equal at some level, um, and so uh, you you can't rely on uh, your sort of uh, uh, elevated status to carry the thing off. Instead, what you need to do is embrace that uh, democratization uh, and uh, bring people in and make it a conversation and poll them constantly and ask them their opinion and get them to talk uh, to you via chat. And it's just, you just have to change the nature of what you're doing. It, I, I say as a rule of thumb, in fact, I was arguing about this with uh, a colleague the other day, uh, whether the best rule of thumb was go no more than five minutes without uh, interaction or go no more than 10 minutes without interaction. So we settled on seven, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it certainly shouldn't be more than 10 minutes without some kind of interaction, unless you're a okay. heck of a storyteller. Okay. Let's go with another number then. How about the, I mean, if everyone's you're trying to make it into more of a dialogue and give people a chance to make comments and so on, is there a size that makes sense? Obviously, everyone who's throwing one of these, particularly if they're in the heavy selling mode, loves to have as many people join as possible. Is anyone done well by saying, let me just go to five or 10 people or some much smaller number than usual so that I can actually create a sense of intimacy? Does that make any sense? It does. And I think um, ultimately, you can only create intimacy. And I love the word. That's what you need in order to keep people online and keep, keep them engaged. You can only create intimacy with fewer than six people, uh, more than six, and it feels like a speech or a, con a public conversation, less than six, and it can feel intimate. So uh, you, the total number isn't as important as the number of times you break up the group into those small pods, if you will, and allow okay. those people a chance to talk to one another. So you could probably handle a couple hundred people on a call um, if you broke, as long as you did broke it up and have them do work uh, on a regular basis in groups of three or four or five or six. Okay. So it sounds a bit like what Tom Peters said is the definition of a good group size, which is a team should have no more people than can be fed with two large pizzas. So uh, <laughs> I like that. Keep it smaller than bigger. Yeah. Um, so speaking of formats, good and bad. So YouTube, you know, has its inevitable cat tricks and so on. Are there things that work nicer on YouTube, uh, assuming people might be communicating and trying to sell or connect that fashion? Yeah, short works well on YouTube. Funny works well on YouTube. Um, YouTube is essentially a uh, really small TV, so uh, production values matter. Um, uh, okay. and, and then, of course, there's the, the, the other school. For a long time, at the beginning of the Internet, what was charming about it was, or the beginning of YouTube, was charming about it was the lack of production values. Uh, and and so uh, there's still a school of of uh, handheld and rough and and conversational that that works too. It's a matter of picking a style and and making it work. But if if you're uh, if we're talking corporate, um, then uh, I would I would say you've got the the budget. Go for the uh, production values. Does self depreciation help a bit? Oh sure, of course, always. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Especially if you don't have the production values to stand behind. Right. Yeah. Um, you had a chapter on sales and I, there's some intriguing comments and at least one where I, I got a bit lost in the logic. Awesome. I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can straighten me out. <laughs> maybe not. Um, I don't know. I may, well, I may let's be see. lost so, too. Let's, see. Let, let's start with the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, you said 
don't use PowerPoint for sales presentations. We're all, we've all died with more than a few of those as well. Mm. Um, what are you suggesting in that case? If you don't go to PowerPoint, I imagine a few salespeople would go, oh my God, take away my PowerPoint. You're taking away my suit. Yes. Uh, so I would say use short videos uh, if, okay. uh, if you can afford those. And again, you've got the production values to do that. But we can also, nowadays, everybody can make video out of pretty... Uh, uh, pretty low, uh, uh, low cost, low production value uh, software that's out there. So, I wouldn't let that be a handicap. Um, uh, okay. Yes. So, uh, uh, so, so videos might be a way of going, and videos then more is a way instead. Okay. Yeah, uh, conversation is is key, um, and again, making it about the the uh, uh, the listener and the the potential customer rather than about your story and your. Uh, your PowerPoint. The, the the deadly thing about our PowerPoint for a uh, for a sales situation is that it immediately doesn't feel like it's customized to me, and everybody now feels like they're at different points in the and typically much further along in the sales cycle than they used to be. It used to be it was hard to get information. Take automobiles, for example. When you walked onto the lot there and started to wrestle with the uh, car salesman, he or she had more information than you. Um, and you were the victim of that lack of information. You didn't actually know how much he or she had paid for that car or the, or the, the dealer had. Um, and so they had you at a disadvantage. Now you can get that kind of information online. You can use buying services. There are all kinds of ways which you can uh, push the conversation forward. So you enter the engagement at a much later point in the sales cycle. And so if if uh, if I'm a salesperson, I'm just going to walk you through my PowerPoint, whether you like it or not, then, um, then I'm going to feel like it's not customized to me. And so that feels like you're not paying any attention to me. You're just treating me like yet another customer rather than customizing it for me. So that's the that's the my beef with that is it's got to be customized nowadays. You've got to start by listening to the customer and figuring out where they are in the sales cycle and addressing them at that point, not at the beginning, just because you've got a PowerPoint slide deck that you want to go through. Sure. Well, I've seen salespeople who treat their PowerPoint deck like it's uh, their safety blanket and they, they stick to it no matter how the conversation is going. My father was in charge of the, uh, for 3M company, the printed posted note sales force and always said, if you're talking in, for more than half the meeting, it's a bad meeting, yeah. uh, a bad sales meeting. I like that. So um, you kind of brought up in your answer part of where I wanted to go with a little bit of confusion. I understand the part about being further along the sales journey because you can gather information and come to that conversation you know, more prepared and mm-hmm. not on, on you know, step one. Uh, but you also quote this sales expert who says, the sales cycle is lengthening. So in one sense, I'm jumping in later, but the cycle is also getting longer somehow. That, that's where I I'm, I'm, was wondering if you could tease that out for me a little bit. Yeah, so what I think uh, he was talking about there uh, is that um, when you break open the sales cycle, so in other words, the mystery is taken out, It's in, and I have control over it now, I may decide, I may get as far as uh, uh, finding out more information about three different models, right? and I may, I may sit there for a long, long time, 
because uh, maybe that's a sticking point for me, or maybe I don't know, or maybe the more information I find out, the more I'm not sure which uh, which model is going to suit me, or maybe I realize that none of them will suit me, or something. So, uh, the the what happens when you break open that sales cycle is then you allow people to leave and enter freely. Okay, so um, you jump in, you jump in deeper, but it's harder to close or move it along. Is that partly because more of these are virtual and therefore the all important trust element is missing. Yeah, sure. I mean the, uh, the 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 whole the whole idea of trust depends on you believing what uh, what information you're getting, uh, and that's only as good as the next uh, website you run across or the next article that you read that says it's all a lie. Sure, uh, you okay. can't trust yeah. it, right? It's uh, uh, that buying service that you thought was great. That is supposed to get you the uh, car for a hundred dollars over cost. Actually, they're making a grand. So here's another here's another one you should pay attention to. I mean, there's always better and more information out there, and and that is the that's the classic, uh, uh, you know, paralysis by uh, uh, paralysis by analysis. Analysis. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I was suddenly drawing a blank on that very important phrase. Sure. I was so, paralyzed so, by my. <laughs> yeah. so, so some of this is you've got a lot of other options, and some of this is the reviews and the glass door and things that can stop you dead in your tracks because you don't have trust to start with, and you can find lots of opportunities for fear. Yeah, it it's, it's like. the rabbit yeah. hole problem is, and we've all done that. We've all gone down a rabbit hole. We thought we were investigating which uh, uh, which model of Subaru was the best to buy, and we ended up looking at Lamborghinis. Sure. So you mentioned trying to, to overcome this uh, paralysis by analysis. You mentioned trying to get the customer to work on the deal too, the sales deal. Um, can you elaborate what you mean by that? What, what are the successful strategies to get that customer engaged so they don't go down the rabbit holes? Yeah. So if you think of it as a conversation from the start, uh, then you get the customer to to articulate what he or she knows and what he or she needs are and that kind of thing. Then you involve them in, in the conversation. And it's, it's the classic uh, uh, Harvard negotiation project win-win kind of thinking that begins with uh, Roger Fisher and, and goes all the way through to uh, um, the, the more recent iterations and, and more recent books on the subject from, from uh, that group of people. Uh, the idea is to find out what your common ground is um, and then to figure out a way that both of you can win. Now, that, that's harder to see in a simple commercial transaction where you're buying a thing from somebody and then you're going to walk away with it. Uh, but it's not impossible. Um, there, there are ways uh, to open up those things and make sure that, uh, that, that both the seller and the buyer are benefiting. Um, and to do that, you have to have a real conversation and bring the both uh, parties into the into that conversation and find common ground, find things that you both want or share or so that you can point in the same direction. Well, that, that certainly sounds like EQ skills become a priority uh, given you know, virtual communication and the hindrances, handicaps that places on things. Um, next place I wanted to go to is your conclusion. I can remember when I was finishing my first book and I turned it into John Wiley and then they came back just before Christmas and said, we need one more chapter. It's like, I got nothing more to say, man. Uh, I'm on fumes here. Um, you managed to throw in something in your conclusion that I thought was pretty significantly interesting. Uh, and I, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on it. And here was the comment. You said, digital communication, the rise of digital communication 
has changed the nature of the employer-employee relationship forever. Uh, that's intriguing. What do you mean by that? Well, um, the, the thing the thing I mentioned earlier on in, in our conversation about the democratization of everybody who's on the internet, the, everybody who's a, a, a computer node apart one way or another, um, says that at some level we all have equal access or pretty equal access to the information that can aid or bring down a company. Um, and so just from the start, there's a kind of um, equalization that's going on that changes the nature of that relationship. Um, the, the, the old relationship was hierarchical, even patriarchal, um, and it involved uh, power and information being held in the upper levels of the company um, and only disseminated as needed down to the lower levels of the company um, or the organization. And when you when you empower people with lots more information, uh, then uh, then that changes, and it it doesn't go back. You don't put the genie back in the bottle, or or, uh, or take the information away from people. Once you know things, uh, it's hard to unknow them, uh, and so that does change things forever. Okay, so those who've had power in part through hoarding information, that's not a uh, good trick in their bag of tricks any longer. Um, yeah, absolutely okay. not. You've got to assume, and this is a hard conversation I've had as a coach with uh, top executives in a number of companies, is uh, the thing you're trying to keep secret um, and that you're just viscerally uncomfortable with revealing is probably something that's already out there on the internet anyway. They, they, your employees already probably know it. Um, and that doesn't absolve them of fiduciary responsibility and, and complying with all known laws and regulations. But it does mean that, uh, especially emotional information, um, is already probably out there, and uh, and you're foolish to try to hide it or control it in the ways that used to be possible, even 30 years ago. Um, well, that that leads me to another question, which is just delving into human nature. There are things you'd love to hide from other people, but what happens when you you try to hide it from yourself? I mean, I have to <laughs> confess that the idea of going online to see what may have been written about me, not that I think I have any major scandals or, you know, having killed 40 people or anything like that. But, you know, it's just human nature. We don't like negative feedback. I remember, I think it was Sally Fields and winning her, her Oscar said, my God, you really actually like me, you know, and, <laughs> and was totally delighted by that. I mean, how do we handle the pain of raw criticism? Do we just say, well, it's not as bad as, you know, my rival and what they got hit with? I mean, how, how do you, I mean, there's just a certain gut level dread and terror of having to face that feedback. Yeah, that's a genuine problem. And I think it has a lot to do with why uh, the world has taken the dark turn that it has in the last decade or so. A lot of that does have to do with the echo chamber that is social media and the kind of trolling that goes on. Um, and I don't think um, there is a good answer for that because you're absolutely right. We don't like uh, to read negative things about ourselves uh, and we don't accept negative feedback very well. And one of the things that, uh, uh, that HR organizations have been wrestling with during the pandemic is how do you keep giving employee feedback when it can't be face-to-face. -face. And it was tough enough to do face-to-face. -face. And, and of course, sure. a lot of big corporations just fall into a kind of a, a rote system of checking the boxes and they don't really put a lot of passion or energy into it. And everybody then just ignores it. 
but um, how do you do that online if you have to deliver bad news to, as you inevitably will as a manager to some employees? Um, because we take it much more negatively if it comes to us virtually than we do face-to-face. Because face-to-face, you can soften it. The, the boss can pat you on the arm and say, you know, Dan, that wasn't your best job that time, but other times you're great, you know, and, and that softens it a little bit. Online, when you hear that wasn't your best job, you think, oh my God, my career is over. Sure. And that's just the way we respond. That's human nature. So it's this is yeah. this is a real problem. And, and I think uh, we humans have to uh, toughen ourselves up. I mean, the, the comments I remember uh, about my book online are the negative ones. Um, and the same with any other author. You, and, and I've had this conversation with, uh, uh, with my coachees who are speakers or authors. Um, and I'll say, look, 50 glowing positive reviews. And they'll say, look, here's one bad one. <laughs> what do <laughs> well, I do we hear, about we, that? <laughs> yeah. Well, we hear bad news more loudly. That's just uh, human nature. Yeah. Let's go out on, on a positive note. So you've Excellent. Du- duly noted that, uh, you know, not just virtual communication, but social media and the internet and all of that can be, you know, akin to eating Pringles, uh, not very satisfying. So you keep eating even more and you binge eat. And then you you don't uh, you have a bloated stomach, but you're not satisfied. Uh, hence the title of this episode. Yeah. H- have there been some strategies or some sources, some ways in which you've gotten a more satisfying meal online? I say that in part because just as I ditch webinars, I, I am tired to death of the you know three page or three scroll section article that delivers nothing for me. I, I don't even know if it's a Pringle. I mean, it's it's a, a small piece of a Pringle potato chip. <laughs> Uh, so I think it behooves us all to uh, to monitor our addictions. And uh, there was a study done of uh, people who spend more than half an hour on social media are more likely to be depressed than people who spend less than half an hour a day on social media. And so it's up to us to, to monitor that and to and to know what we can handle, be self self aware, and know that okay, if if we're amongst those people who get depressed by spending more than half an hour a day, well then for us means we have to, uh, we have to tighten our belts and, and diet and spend less than half an hour a day. Um, those are the kinds of things that we have to do in order to survive online. What I said at the beginning of the book was that this is a huge unregulated unreg- social experiment that really started with a cell phone. Of course, it began with email in the seventies, but it really accelerated with a cell phone. 2007, when the iPhone came out, 2008. Um, And there's no guarantee just because it's new, flashy technology looks cool and is very useful. There's no guarantee that all its effects are good. And and, and also, it's never going to go away. We're, We're stuck with it and also blessed with it. I mean, there are many, many good things about instant communication and being able to carry what used to be the equivalent of a supercomputer in the, in your jeans pocket. Um, Those are, those are good things. And there are enough good things about that, that humanity isn't going to let go of them. So uh, we have to learn to live with the negative things. And and we tend to be just sort of uh, unthinking embracers of new technology. Um, And my, uh, back when I used to work at, at uh, Harvard business press, my, uh, my colleague, Nicholas Carr, um, was uh, very much of the opposite school, and and he wrote a book about 
the internet and the effect it was having on us. And you said it was, it was uh, uh, making us all shallow thinkers. Um, and at the time, most of us took them to task and said, no, the, the, this brings us lots of great information and it can enrich our conversations and it brings us more power and all those things are also true. Uh, but he was right not to ignore the dark side and and to and to warn us about it and we have to be grown-up users of it it's like getting licensed to drive an automobile that doesn't mean you get to drive like an idiot <laughs> fair enough anyway so nick it's been a delight to have you on the show i want to thank you again for being my guest on dan hill's eq spotlight this has been episode number 16 communicating virtually is like eating pringles forever my guest nick morgan is the author of several books including most recently, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. To check out other episodes or my books or appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. There you'll also find your opportunity to contribute to my new book, which I'm crowdsourcing. It's called The Devil's Dictionary of Work Life. Uh, my first contribute contribution is this definition of diversity in senior management, a short white guy. <laughs> so I invite your sample terms and entries, um, and you can read other people's theirs online as well. Uh, if you have follow-up questions for Nick, by all means, uh, email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give it a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, social media, always gratefully received, of course. Uh, you can sa save the glass door entries for someplace else. Um, finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we've been talking about the pitfalls of virtual communication today, I'm going to end with this prescient warning from Peter Drucker, who said, the most important thing and communication is hearing what isn't said. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.